how do you react when someone tells you to do something? Or perhaps tells you that you should stop doing something? Perhaps it's your parents telling you to stop arguing with your brother or your sister. Perhaps it's your boss telling you that you need to work harder. A policeman telling you to stop. The government telling you that you should go out and spend to get the economy going again. How do you feel? Do you do what they tell you to do? We're all wired differently, aren't we? Some of us are better at doing what we're told than others. But I think that for all of us, there are times and situations when we find it hard to do as we're told. Now, of course, it might depend on who is asking. It will probably depend on what we're being asked to do, whether we want to do it or not. Whether it's safe to do it, the impact it might have on others. How about if God is the one who is telling us what we should or shouldn't do, what we must or must not do? Why should or would we obey God? And how would that work in our lives? We're going to explore this together as we look again at the life of Elijah, a character we encounter in the Bible. Now we've been following his story over the last couple of weeks, seeing how he lived his life in relationship with God and what we can learn from that. We've had a part of that story read to us this morning and we're weaving back and forth through his life, teasing out different themes and ideas. And I really encourage you to read the whole story. Most of it is just in three chapters, a 10 or 15 minute read. Chapters 17 to 19 in the first book of Kings. It's an action-packed story centred on the nation of Israel almost 3,000 years ago. The nation has been ruled over by a series of kings and the king at this time is called Ahab. He and his wife Jezebel were the most wicked and evil rulers that Israel had known. Suddenly Elijah bursts onto the scene as if from nowhere. God has sent him to confront the king. Why? Because there's a conflict in the land. It's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual conflict. Ahab and Jezebel have encouraged the people to abandon God and to look to other things, other so-called gods, to meet their needs and provide for them. Now one of these gods was called Baal, and he was god of the storm. He had control over the dew and the rain. The people of Israel were dependent on these sources of moisture to grow their food, and this water was provided for them by Baal, or at least so they believed. Elijah comes in with a direct challenge. There's going to be no more rain or dew for three years. That would mean severe drought and famine. It's a direct challenge to the king, to the people and to their so-called gods. Following this dramatic intervention, God speaks to Elijah again and tells him to go away to a place of safety. And we thought about that last week. Later, God speaks to Elijah once more and sends him back to King Ahab. 
God's warning has been ignored. And now it's time for the big showdown. Elijah calls the supporters of Jezebel's gods to a contest at Mount Carmel. They each offer sacrifices, but God comes down with fire. He demonstrates that he really is in control. The other so-called gods are powerless. It's an amazing victory. But Elijah seems to panic. Despite all of this, he's still afraid of Jezebel. Nothing really seems to have changed. He's been obedient to God. But perhaps he's thinking that he's failed. Perhaps he's just suffering from spiritual exhaustion. Whatever is behind it, he runs away. But God again provides for his deepest needs and graciously meets with him. Once more, God's word comes to Elijah and once again, he obeys. Back he goes. There's a pattern here, a recurring theme. Do you see it? The word of God comes to Elijah and he responds. He does something. He obeys God. For Elijah is an extraordinary and dramatic story. The things that happen in our lives may not be so dramatic, but the principles can be the same. We hear what God wants us to do. We trust him and we obey in the small things and in the bigger things. Sometimes that will be in the face of hardship or opposition. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed and we just want to crawl away, to curl up in a corner and to hide. So what can we learn from the story of Elijah, who, the Bible tells us, is a man just like each of us? We have some activities for the children to help explore this theme of obedience. And in a moment, Suzanne is going to explain those to us. For the rest of us, we'll pick this up again after this short break. So why should I, or why should you, obey God? You may think that's an odd question to begin with. Surely it's obvious. You might say, I obey God because I'm a Christian, a follower of Jesus. That's what we do. But why? I think it's very hard to do something unless we really know why we're doing it. We find two clues in the story of Elijah that I think help us to answer this. The first is not from Elijah, but from Obadiah, whom we met in the reading we had earlier. Obadiah was described as someone who feared the Lord greatly. The second clue is from Elijah himself. Later on in the story, in the following chapter, we read that after Elijah has fled from Jezebel and is hiding, the word of the Lord came to him and the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. Obadiah obeys God because, we read, he fears him. 
Elijah obeys God because he is passionately concerned about what God wants and deeply disturbed that the people reject God. So is one right and one wrong? Now it seems to me that this idea of the fear of the Lord is very much out of fashion these days. Even though the Bible mentions fear of God over 300 times, that's almost one for each day of the year, and almost always in positive terms. And Jesus frequently warns his listeners that they should fear God rather than fear man. But why should we fear God? Isn't God love? We read in the first letter of John very clearly, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Can we believe that God loves us, and at the same time, that we should fear him? Now I would suggest that to fear God doesn't mean that we cower before him because we're scared or frightened of him. We're not afraid in that sense. But it does mean that we should have a healthy and proper respect and awe for who he is. We see his matchless power demonstrated as the creator and sustainer of all things and all people. We glimpse his holiness, his absolute purity and goodness. And we realise the poverty of our own character in comparison. We discover that he is the righteous judge of all the earth, before whom one day we will stand to give an account of ourselves. As I reflect on this question of the fear of the Lord, I find uh, these words of William Eisenhower helpful. He writes, as I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions so he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment of my sin, but forgives me nevertheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. I think what this means is that the more we grow to fear God, the more we understand him, the more we will grow to love him. And conversely, the less we fear him, I think the less we will be inclined to even think him worthy of our love and devotion. Now, according to the psalm writer, fearing God is equivalent to delighting in his commands and following the principles of his law, to walk in obedience to him. In Psalm 112 we read, How joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying his commands. Or in Psalm 119, 
I am a friend to anyone who fears you, anyone who obeys your commandments. Now I said earlier that it's very hard to do something unless we really know why we're doing it. But we have to acknowledge that sometimes God will ask us to do something without us really understanding why. And that's because he's God and we are not. He knows and understands more than we do. In times like this, our why is simply that we trust him. We believe, we know that he knows what he's asking and that it is good and right. So our second question is, how do we get to know what God wants us to do? The very first verse that we had read to us earlier says, Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. This runs like a refrain through the story of Elijah's life. The word of the Lord comes to him. He hears God speak. So, how does the word of the Lord come to us? That's quite a big topic and we can only really skim the surface in the short time we have together this morning. But here are some pointers. Firstly, it comes through his written word, the Bible. Here we get to know who he is, what he is like and what he asks of us. So how is that for us? How well do we know his written word? Really know it and grasp it. All of it, not just the familiar, uncomfortable bits. I have found it helpful over the years to regularly read through the whole Bible, maybe every other year, every three years, to read right through from beginning to end. Is that something that might be helpful for you? Do I wrestle with the bits I find difficult, I don't like or don't understand? Or do I simply ignore them, dismiss them or try to explain them away? Do I recognise that God is complex? Actually, he's infinite. And that I have to hold different facets of who he is in tension with one another. Now, Jesus relied on and quoted the scriptures, what we would know as the Old Testament. Right at the start of his public ministry, we find him driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, where Satan comes and tempts him to take a different path. Jesus remains obedient to God by relying on the written word of scripture. But not merely quoting it, even Satan is doing that, but because he's, he has absorbed it into his very being, his way of thinking, of understanding what God is saying through it and making it a part of his own life. Meditating on the scriptures, allowing them to seep into us, studying them and wrestling with them is foundational. 
But the purpose is to enable us to grasp who God is, who Jesus is, to come to know him. The Bible isn't a manual, a rule book, a set of how-tos. We should think of it more as a biography, an introduction to his person. So the Bible gives us this general picture of God and a general understanding of how we are to live our lives before him. But Jesus speaking of his disciples says that my sheep hear my voice. We need to learn to hear God's voice. And how does that work? Now, sometimes we might say that a writer or a musician has found his or her voice. What does that mean? Well, it means they've developed a particular style or way of communicating so that when we see or hear something new, we are able to recognise whether or not it comes from them, whether it's authentic. And I think in a similar way, as we grow to know God, we begin to learn what his voice sounds like. We learn what is authentically of him. And that voice can come to us in many different ways. We've thought about the way we see it in a general sense through scripture. But we can receive it too through the words of scripture applying to our own particular current circumstances. Sometimes it comes through an inner voice or deep conviction. Sometimes through other people. Perhaps through dreams and visions. Even through circumstances. Sometimes, and for some individuals, it comes as the audible voice of God. Though that isn't an experience that I've ever had. So what might help us to develop this habit of hearing God? I would suggest that we need to start by being open to him, expecting to hear from him and what he wants to reveal to us. We come in expectation, but we need to ask him what he might be saying to us in any particular situation. And we need to let go of our own presuppositions, preoccupations and desires to lay ourselves to one side. But I think when it comes down to it, if we are to obey God, then our goal should be to renew our minds so that we will be in a constant state of knowing his will. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and 
perfect will. So firstly, we need to grow in our understanding of who God is in all of the complexity of his character and personality and to understand his general purpose for our lives. We need to learn what it means to hear his voice so that we cultivate that habit of listening to him daily, continually. But then thirdly, we see from the story of Elijah that our obedience is cultivated against a backdrop of spiritual conflict. Now, in Elijah's case, this was very visible and very dramatic. And for us, it may be much less spectacular. But it will nonetheless be just as real. On Mount Carmel, Elijah challenges the people, saying, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, this is quite a tricky phrase to translate, and translators have difficulty with this. Literally, it means something like, How long will you keep on dancing from one leg to the other? Like a bird trying to straddle a widening branch, or a man trying to take both forks of a road at the same time. I think you'd agree it loses something of the original humour in translation. But the meaning is clear. It's clearly meant to be a condemnation of half-hearted or double-minded indecision. There's a clear choice to be made. Yahweh, the true God of Israel, or Baal, the false and powerless God of Jezebel. Jesus often picks up this idea as he tells us that we cannot serve two masters. He tells us that we should be in the world, but not a part of it. We cannot compromise. So the question is, am I really obedient to God? Or am I basically following the path of least resistance in my life? Am I, in fact, tempted to fit in with those around me? To avoid causing offence or doing anything that might upset someone else? Do I mistrust any impulse that might pull me away from the accepted consensus of the communities that I belong to? Or of the wider society around me? Jesus gives his disciples a radical command that ought to be the framework through which we contemplate our daily choices. Take up your cross and follow me. So what does it mean to take up my cross? Does it mean that if I attend church, join a small group, give 10% of my income and have a daily quiet time, then what I do with the rest of my life is basically up to me. No, if what I'm taking up is actually a cross, then I think that signifies I am willing to risk social rejection and even physical violence. I'm willing to risk everything. If I'm following Jesus, it means I'm being constantly uprooted from any sort of complacency. 
Taking up my cross and following Jesus is a life of radical obedience to God, which will often mean that we are choosing a path which is in opposition to the way of the world. Choosing to obey God is a choice and the stakes are higher than we might often like to think. So we need to discipline our bodies and our souls so that our natural inclination will be to obey God in all situations whenever we are being tempted to do otherwise. And so as we draw to a close, we see that Elijah was a man who lived his life standing before God. He had cultivated a rhythm of life, a discipline of keeping his attention focused on God, walking with him day by day, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And so I have to ask myself, to what extent do I know a fear of the Lord, which fills my heart with love for him and creates in me a deep desire to obey him? Am I attentive to his voice in scripture and in the moment, learning what he desires and what pleases him? Am I actively pursuing a life of disciplined obedience? Or am I drifting along with a little obedience here and a little obedience there? Let's pray together. O oh, Father in heaven, we declare that you our God Almighty, the all-powerful creator of all things and all people. We declare that you are perfectly good and that in your great love it is your desire that we should live according to your will and purpose, bringing us freedom from all that would make us less than we truly should be. Help us, we ask, to grow in the fullness of our knowledge and understanding of who you are, learning to hear so clearly your voice moment by moment and being transformed by the renewing of our minds that we would walk in humble obedience, seeking first your kingdom and its righteousness and forsaking the ways of the world. Confirm and strengthen these things in our hearts and our minds by the power of your Spirit and for the honour and glory of your Son, our Saviour and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.